it has begun. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Continental Writing Club. My name... Oh, nope. Fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You know what? Just go with it. Let's... Let's just do the intros and then we'll wing it from there. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the Continental Writing Club. I'm Brenna and I'm drinking a Bifrost Winter Ale from Elysian. She's going to tell you what she's drinking a lot because... I tend to drink a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, hi, my name is Amy. Uh, I'm drinking Smith & Forge Hard Cider. It's hard cidery. <laughs> Uh, I am Reagan. I am also drinking the Elysian Frost Winter Ale. It's not my favorite, but it's pretty well, wintry. You guys are giving reviews now? <laughs> Just enjoy your goddamn drink. Uh, we would like to thank you for joining us, though. Um, this is our first endeavor on the Continental Writing Club, mm-hmm. but we are very excited to share with you some stories and our structure. Yeah, so let's dive into what we do. Uh, essentially, we are three friends who wanted to inspire each other to write more and not just to produce things that we have to for work or for school. So we wanted to challenge each other creatively, and we decided we would meet every other week and provide three prompts and have to write at least 500 words minimum. Not have to finish the story, not have to meet a thousand word deadline or something like that. But it doesn't even have to be particularly good. No, but it, it can <laughs> it can be a really <laughs> shitty outline. We've managed not to get to that level, but if necessary, give us time. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the comfort fallback. We know we can just write 500 words of shit, and we end up instead fixating on it and being like, "I need an extra day because I need to make my five pages really good." So you know, it yeah. works in our favor, and it's definitely helped us all grow a little bit creatively. Yeah, um, creatively. Ooh, I can speak, <laughs> and it helps us. Um, have a fun project to do as friends. So we wanted to share that with other people. Everybody that we've told in person seemed pretty into it, and now we're sharing it with you. So feel free, as we do this, to listen to our stories, to send us feedback about our stories. Uh, at the very end of the episode, we'll have more ways you can reach out to us, but let's just dive into the first episode. Um, today's so, prompts were Amy's. Yeah, so this was, I was the, it was kind of a collective drunken thought between us for this club, but I was the one who actually sat down and, like, was like, yeah, we're gonna do this. Let's do it. Yeah, she was very proactive. Very proactive. (laughs) So I came up with the first set of prompts. Uh, Prompt number one. A retelling of the Three Little Pigs. Prompt number two. A fantastical creature, sci-fi or fantasy, is put on trial for murder. Prompt three. A day in the life of Cinderella's ball shoe. And with that, we all took two weeks. We wrote our 500 words minimum. And now you get to hear our stories. They're all more than 500 words. They, they <laughs> all are. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, our first reading will be Reagan. Hello, Reagan again. All right. I chose the prompt, Three Little Pigs are Retelling, which I dubbed Apocalypse, a la Three Little Pigs. That name did not stay. Anyway, <laughs> here we go. It was a day just like the rest had been, sticky and hot, every surface radiant with the sun's fury. Everywhere little Molly looked, she saw the signs of war, small lakes of fallen ice cream melting steadily outward like blood pooling around a homicide victim, faded plastic toys left to grow brittle in the sun's rays, discarded shoes and layers of clothing strewn about like some apocalyptic wasteland. This was a children's war. This was summer. Molly continued to wander the emptied streets, searching for signs of where the other children had gone, but the ephemera of their early morning play had left confusing trails that led nowhere in particular. 
They had all fled the afternoon heat and were likely barricaded behind the sheltering embrace of living room walls, basements, and the odd tree fort. Fanning herself, Molly sought out the shade of a towering oleander bush. Its cavernous branches were little reprieve, but she was small for her seven years, and she was just nearly able to tuck all of her limbs and digits into the weak shadows. She glanced up at the sound of shuffling feet, scuffling along the glaring sidewalk. It was a girl, not much older than Molly. She looked down at Molly with hollow eyes and an open mouth, panting slightly in the heat. Molly could just see the light gleam off of her white teeth, but then the girl had passed the curving mouth of her oleander cave and she was gone. Molly exhaled shakily and rubbed the salt off her face. It was too hot. She knew she couldn't just hide all day, though. Now was the time. These were the ideal days, the warring days of summer. Taking courage from the elder girl, Molly crawled back out of her temporary shelter and stumbled in the intensity of the afternoon heat. Her mouth was dry and the sun scarcely drew a drop of sweat out of her now. She couldn't go home yet. She needed to find the other children. She knew most were out of reach, permitted back inside by parents that didn't care if they lounged in front of televisions and game systems. But there were always those few who stayed outside in the realm of imagination. There were always those few who followed the old ways. Molly licked her dry lips with a dry tongue and turned her sunken eyes to the end of the cul-de-sac. With lurching steps, she made her way, shakily, to the curving belly of the street. She knew one of the boys had a base of sorts, a makeshift fort he had been working on, though she had never ventured that far before. She knew how boys were, and that there was no point in attempting to gain entry, but these were desperate times, and no girls allowed just wasn't strong enough an incantation anymore. As she neared, she could make out the haphazard outline of the base. It was an ugly, jagged thing, pulled together with the remnants of various home projects about the neighborhood, scraps of wood flooring, corrugated metal covers, chicken wire, and fencing. She wasn't entirely sure the motley pieces were even secured, one to the other. She hesitated a few feet from it, imagining the whole thing crashing down around her if she neared. But then she caught a flash of movement from beyond the rusted facade. Licking her lips again, dry tongue running along the edge of her teeth, she closed the gap to the base. She pointedly ignored the warped cardboard sign to her right, which bore the time-honored warning to all girls, its sloppy, jittery letters painted in cruel red. Hello, she croaked out in a weak voice. She listened as the movement inside quieted, making the following silence all the more obvious. Hello, she tried again. She attempted to peek through the narrow gap where flooring and metal had run scarce, and all that kept the sun, and girls, at bay was the loose weave of a chain-link fence. She squinted her eyes, but the sun was so bright against the facade that she could not make out the shapes within the base's dark interior. Suddenly, the boy within moved into the gap, blocking Molly's view of the cool space beyond. "'Go away! Can't you read the sign?' he confronted her, words lisping around a missing tooth. "'Yes, but,' Molly replied meekly. "'What do you want?' the boy demanded through the opening. Only half of his face was visible, but Molly could see he was about her age and bore vibrant freckles and a split lip from a skirmish earlier in the day. His white t-shirt was mottled with bloodstains, now brown as dirt. "'Oh, does it hurt still?' Molly asked in her small voice, shifting her weight from foot to foot. She knew who the boy was now. His name was Joey, and the older boys picked on him. She was amazed he still had his own base, though she knew his older brother was threat enough. Perhaps the boys were too scared to take the base away from him. Still, he was a weak link in the boys' ranks. He was a beta. Molly had a chance with this one. Course not, stupid girl. It don't hurt at all. With unnecessary bravado, Joey scraped his knuckles across his split lip in a rough motion, as if to prove how very painless it was. He immediately winced as it pulled open and gleamed with fresh blood. 
Molly shifted to the side to allow a beam of sunlight to illuminate the boy's face, and he was suddenly thrown into full glow, a glare of white shirt, pale skin, and red blood. He slammed his eyes shut at the sudden blinding light. Molly felt a stabbing tickle in her nose, and she glanced from his bright white shirt to the angry sun behind her, then back, just, just in time to... Molly sneezed in a harsh, loud snarl that nearly knocked her over. She curled her fingers through the chain-link fence and held herself upright, sniffling and wiping at her face with her free hand, but there was a flurry of motion and noise within the base. "'What did you do?' Joey screamed from the shadows. "'No! Ah!' Joey's panicked cries were muffled past his arms as he scrubbed at his face with every inch of his available shirt. Molly curled the fingers of her other hand through the links as well and pulled her face close, eyes wide and empty as she tried to make sense of the flailing shape of the boy." "'Are you okay?' she asked without any real concern, but her voice was tiny and Joey hadn't heard amid his screams of terror. Suddenly, he came into view again and Molly let go of the fence, taking several steps back from the gap. "'What did—what did you—' Joey mumbled at her, past the froth of blood and spit forming at his lips. His eyes were as red as the paint on his no-girl's warning sign, but the fingers he gripped the fence with were black.' Great, pulsing veins spiderwebbed down from his hairline, ugly and dark, and there too on his neck and his arms. Molly stepped back again, staring with wide, unblinking eyes. Joey shook the fence, rattling it in sudden rage, snarling and foaming like a rabid creature while the blood-tinged spittle coming out of his mouth in rivulets turned as black as tar. His rage turned to convulsions and he dropped to the dirt floor of his base and began kicking and thrashing. Molly turned and ran. She had no idea how far she had gone, but she couldn't go any further. The heat left her dizzy as she fell against the tree, panting. She leaned her head back, gasping for breath, unsatisfied with the hot, thick air she got as a reward. When she could finally breathe in even rhythm, she opened her eyes and looked around. There was relative shade here among the trees, but their trunks were far apart and their leaves were brittle and few, doing little to stand against the sun. It was better than the melting asphalt of the cul-de-sac. She turned her thoughts away quickly. With effort, she managed to stand, though she felt weak and desperately thirsty. Glancing down at herself, she noted how dust-covered she was, and there, just at the hem of her white dress, a spot of blackened blood. Calmly, she took a handful of dirt and rubbed it into the spot, satisfied that it at least covered the ugly stain for now. There were still several hours to go before parents would begin stepping out onto porches and calling their children home for dinner, still several hours left in the sun. She began walking, trying to take stock of where she was and what was available to her. Before long, she came out of the small patch of woodland and onto the baked, barren field at the edge of the park. An expanse of coarse yellow grass stuck out in uninviting waves, broken only by swaths of bald, cracked dirt. It made her feel parched just to look at it. In the distance, just visible through the shimmering heat waves, she could make out the abstract forms of the playground. It was all blistering hot metal and primary-colored plastics, age-worn materials twisted into skeletal architecture barely substantial enough to keep you from the lava floors. Scattered around the periphery were the rounded, bloated forms that resembled alien creatures attached to springs and pivots and platforms. Molly squinted beneath the sunshield of her hand, but not one child was visible. No, there would be no cries of joy and laughter from little bodies scurrying over the playground like ants. Not today, not in this heat. Molly didn't feel defeat, though. In fact, she felt emboldened. She knew where she was now. Resolutely, she turned her back to the wasteland of the park and returned to the meager woods. She knew that lanky, gap-toothed Lewis had a tree for on the other side of a stretch of trees. Though its walls were shambles and there was only a partial ceiling, it would be far cooler up in the heights of the branches than near the ground, which radiated heat back up into Molly's canvas sneakers. The woods were much easier to navigate now that she had her bearing. 
She noted the varying fences that demarcated the backyards, counting her way down to Jameson's. There, she turned right and wove through the bare tree trunks, making her way across a shallow, quite dry creek bed. Before she had gone another fifteen steps, she saw the tree fort looming ahead. She could hear the faint sounds of eight-bit heroes clashing in epic battle to catchy, albeit repetitive music. Even in the wilderness, children could not escape the clutches of technology. Molly approached the fort from an angle, avoiding the broad opening that served as window and door both. She searched the ground around the trunk of the tree, picking past junk food packages and soda cans. Lewis was not an environmentally aware tree fort owner, Molly decided with a wrinkle of her nose. As she came around full circle, her fingers found the rough wooden planks of the rope ladder, which dangled against the body of the tree. She gave it a test pull, and the coarse hemp lines showed little change under her meager weight. She frowned and then gave it another test jiggle, not fully certain she trusted it. At her urging, the uneven planks of a ladder knocked against the tree like dull, low wood chimes. She could only enjoy the lazy melody for a moment before she heard the video game music fall quiet as the gamer paused to listen. She had inadvertently alerted Lewis to her presence. Following a series of thuds and shuffling noises, Lewis poked his head over the opening in the floorboards. His brow was creased in a deep frown and he stared down at Molly for several seconds. No words shared between them. Then, quite suddenly, he reached his arms around and gave the ladder a tug. Molly's eyes flew wide and she gripped the ladder instinctively, as if she would fall some great distance should she let go, though her feet were still firmly planted in the dirt. "'Hey, what do you think you're doing?' Lewis shouted down to her as he gave the ladder another fierce shake. Dust and dirt and bits of brittle leaf all lining the tops of the planks were stirred into a flurry, and Molly had to release one hand from the ladder so she could cover her eyes. It was too late, and the dust had gotten into her nose and mouth. She felt the tickle at the back of her throat, and before she could prepare herself, she was sneezing again. She rubbed at her face with her free hand before returning her grip to the planks of wood in front of her. When she squinted back up at Lewis, he was glaring at her contemptuously. "'What?' she called up, sounding miserable. She squinted her eyes, afraid she might sneeze again should he rattle the ladder once more. But he didn't. Instead, he rolled his eyes and made a sound of great exasperation, as if Molly was trying every bit of patience he had stored up. "'Look, I'm busy, kid,' he called down importantly. Molly didn't doubt the older boy was busy, as all kids were. There were so many dragons to tame and scotches to hop, worlds to discover and scooters to race. She felt fairly bad for wasting his time, but it was such a hot day. It would have been easier if he hadn't been all the way up there, hiding from the heat like she wished to do. "'It's too hot down here,' she replied, honestly. "'Can I come up there?' For a moment, Lewis didn't blink or move, but then his eyebrows crept up his forehead and Molly knew what his answer would be. "'What are you, stupid?' He shook his head and guffawed down at her. She looked away and sniffled, shuffling the dirt with one foot. She thought back to the cul-de-sac and the other boy. As she studied her feet, Lewis reached for the rope ladder and gave another tug. "'Wait!' Molly cried out piteously. She wrapped her arms around the rung that dangled at chest height, and she tugged back hard, barely maintaining against the older boy's efforts. Had he not been at an awkward angle, lying along the floorboards of his tree fort, she was certain he would have freed the ladder from her weak embrace in no time at all. "'Let go! I'm not letting you up here! Your girl!' Lewis shouted down at her in disgust. The planks slammed against the tree trunk in rhythm with their brief scuffle, knocking more dirt and dust free in a cloud about Molly's head. She considered very briefly just clinging to the ladder and getting tugged up with it, but the dust was setting her off again, and she let go with one arm in an attempt to cover her face. 
It was no good. The moment she let go, the ladder started to rise, so she quickly grabbed at it again. Her ensuing sneeze was so strong that she jerked her head forward and struck herself on one of the planks. She saw a wet sheen of spittle attract fresh dust as it was tugged up past her face and away. Meanie, she mewled petulantly, fighting tears from a stinging collision with the plank. She rubbed at her forehead and frowned up at Lewis. Ha! That's what you get for even trying! He was smug with his victory, and Molly watched him reel the ladder up, collecting its length one plank at a time and piling it somewhere just beyond view. He moved quickly, and by the time he reached Molly's sneezy plank, it was still slick with her expulsion. It gave her some small satisfaction to witness the boy's triumphant grin twist into a grimace as he closed his fingers around it. Gross! Don't you know you're supposed to cover your mouth? He shook his hand, as if to shake free the germs, then wiped it vigorously on his pants before finishing gathering the ladder. Molly stared at him, unblinking, waiting. Whatever. You can go away now, stupid... Lewis's dismissal was cut short by a sudden cough. He scowled at her and made to speak again, but he was immediately cut off a second time by a series of deeper, wet coughs. Molly waited. You... Lewis tried to utter something else, a look of horror on his face, but Molly never found out what he was thinking. Lewis was bent double now, coughing and sputtering in a horrible, bubbling, gurgling riot. Molly watched what she could see of him through the uneven opening in the floorboards, though it wasn't much. Lewis had begun thrashing around now, and she could no longer make out much more than a leg here and an arm there, a tuft of his hair, a pillow sent flying. Lewis, she called up quietly. His response was an anguished cry, and then he came tumbling into view, half hanging over the wall of the fort's narrow deck. His skin had gone ashen, sweat beating up like glistening scales along his brow, and in stark contrast, the web of blackened veins bulging at his temples and his throat and on the backs of his hands. He was digging at his throat, trying to tug his shirt collar away as if it were strangling him, his fingers leaving great furrows across his neck and collarbones. Molly took several steps back and stared up at him with wide eyes. Lewis struggled, choking on his own spit and blood, and then disorientation claimed him. He stumbled, and for just a moment, he seemed to hover parallel to the fort, free from the laws of gravity. But then the moment was gone, and so was Lewis. With a feeble cry of surprise and a far louder thud, and several cracking accompaniments, what had been Lewis lay in a disheveled heap before Molly. Blackened blood pooled outward around him in sluggish ripples, clumping in the dirt as it spread. Molly thought it had been a shame that the ladder had been reeled up. Now no one would be able to climb up into the fort again. With a mounting exhaustion and ever-growing thirst, Molly turned her back on the scene and headed towards the street. She had made it past a few backyards when Molly was met with good fortune. A boy stood at the safety of his back door, calling out to her. She unhooked the gate and stepped into his backyard, going only a few steps towards the center and then stopping. She tilted her head and looked at him questioningly. I heard a noise, the boy informed her. Do you know what it was? Molly studied him for a moment, frowning slightly. He looked older, more than eleven, perhaps even twelve. Too old, she thought miserably. It was awful, she said in a small, hollow voice. She brought her arms up and wrapped them about herself, staring into the distance, remembering the truly awful events of the day. The boy stepped closer. What was it? It was like a scream, I thought. He stopped a few feet in front of her and leaned around to peer through the gate, as if the source of the commotion would be displayed just there, conveniently within view. Molly shook her head and began to cry. Awful, she choked out in hiccuping sobs. The boy didn't seem to know what to do. He looked between her, the still open gate, and the mysteries it promised, and his own back door. Ah, uh, 
Oh, please don't cry, he sounded nervous. Molly thought he was definitely older, in the dreaded preteen years of his adolescence, but he sounded nice. Can I have a glass of water? She continued to hiccup and sob, scrubbing at her face with dirty hands that left streaks like half-hearted war paint all across her cheeks and nose. Oh, uh... He bit his lip and stared into the dark opening of the back door. Yeah, sure, that should be fine. He waved her after him and made for the house. Molly sniffled and followed, hardly able to contain her glee. What luck! Some water, and at last, some shade. But as she was within inches of the door, the boy turned and held up his hand to stop her. She stared up at him in confusion, and a small trace of the anger she couldn't hide. "'What is it?' she stammered, sniffling mightily for drama. But her eyes had gone dry and piercing as she watched him. The boy didn't notice, however. He was too busy checking over his shoulder for something. "'Just maybe you should wait here. We're not supposed to let people in. I'll just get you the glass, and you can drink it out there.' The boy was still distracted, looking left and right, jostling his fingers as if nervous. Perhaps his parents were home. Perhaps he wasn't so lucky a find after all. But Molly could feel the luscious cold waves of air conditioning that poured out from around him. Awful! It, it was so awful! Molly began wailing, great gulping sobs renewed. She buried her face in her hands and shook with the weight of her suffering. The tween boy did as she knew he would. He panicked. With loud shushing motions and calming gestures, he tugged her into the living room, then pulled the door shut. Not so loud, my mom will hear. Maybe I should get her, though. He looked at Molly with uncertainty. No, no, she shook her head and wiped at her tears. I don't want to get in trouble. But you said something awful happened. Tween was frowning now, wavering between his options. He certainly didn't want to get in trouble for not informing his mother, but then he'd have to admit he'd invited a strange kid into their yard, and then their home. Before Molly could further waylay his fears, there came a sound from deeper into the room. She turned to look at the clattering of a video game controller and saw a second boy, twisted around and glaring over the back of his chair at the two of them near the doorway. He appeared to be no older than eight, and they stared at one another for a long, tense moment. "'Who is she?' he asked with a petulant whine. He didn't take his eyes off her, and so she held very still. "'Jeremy, don't say anything, okay? She's hurt or something.' I'm just going to grab her some water, and then she'll go. Don't tell Mom. The older boy spoke his hushed orders to his sibling, but the younger boy looked ripe for insubordination. She can't be here. She's a girl, Jeremy complained, as if his brother was an idiot and had somehow missed this glaring fact. Jer, don't be stupid. I'll be right back. Jeremy looked like he was about to argue, but his brother hurried out of the room in search of water. Molly watched Jeremy with gleaming eyes. He looked between her and the hallway door with apprehension. She could tell he was considering his options, but she had the advantage. She stood before both exit points, unless he was prepared to shimmy up the fireplace. Molly licked her lips intensed, ready for a runner. Jeremy wasn't moving, however. He saw how futile an attempt would be, so he held his ground. The seconds ticked by and Molly realized there was no way to do this with any subtlety. She only had moments before the older brother would return. "'What are you playing?' she asked lightly, trying to ease some of the tension. The boy followed her cue and glanced back over his shoulder at the large television screen, which featured two monster trucks and paused mayhem. The brief distraction was fatal, and it was all Molly needed. She lunged at Jeremy, her fingers darting between her lips, seeking what little saliva she had after hours of feeling parched. As the boy turned back around, his eyes went wide with shock, and he jolted backward, falling off of his chair." Molly threw herself over the chair and tugged the fingers from her mouth, but Jeremy was just out of her reach, scrambling to his feet. 
She kicked out and caught his ankles, tripping him. He stumbled to the carpeted ground with a satisfying whoosh of air, and Molly rolled over, reaching. Hey, what do you think you're doing? The brother had returned, and he hauled Molly up by the waist. She kicked and flailed, snarling like a wild beast, so ferocious that he almost dropped her in his surprise. I told you she couldn't be here, Jeremy shouted over them both in panic and rage. Shut up, Mom will hear, the boy struggled to hold Molly. No girls, I told you, Jeremy argued back, nearly frantic with how near a miss it had been. Jeremy, shut up, his brother was too old, he didn't remember. Let me go, Molly shrieked, no longer caring if she drew attention. She was so close. Cooties, she has cooties, Jeremy bellowed. Ow, stop it, the brother was losing his grip. Jeremy, seriously, shut up and grow up. But he wouldn't grow up. He would never have that chance. His brother had hauled Molly in front of himself in an attempt to better wrangle her, and in Jeremy's fervor to prove his point to his brother, he had gotten within Molly's range. She wrenched one arm free and hoped with every fiber of her being that the small smudge of wet between her fingers would be enough. In a flash, her hand shot out, and she latched onto Jeremy's arm with a painful grip willing her cooties to seep into that briefest contact. Then he had wrenched his arm free with a look of horror on his face. He stumbled back and the air was charged with the tension between his and Molly's stares, both of them holding their breath and waiting for any sign of change. The chaos that ensued was stupendous. Jeremy began shrieking and flailing wildly, overturning the coffee table and upsetting the television as he tried to scrub the flesh from his own arm. His brother had released Molly in shock at his brother's reaction. He began trying to capture him and calm him, to make sense of the situation, but it was no good. Molly could hear the mother shrieking for peace and quiet from somewhere else in the house, but she didn't care. She had done it. She made a mad dash for the back door and threw it open, feeling the heat from the dipping sun slam into her like a wall. Once outside, she stopped and whirled back around so she could stare into the mess of the living room. She felt her adrenaline charging through her and she bit her lip, waiting. Had there still been enough spit? Had the cooties survived? The sounds of madness inside shifted and a new note of panic entered the shouts of Jeremy's brother. A thrill of glee ran through Molly as she heard the shrieks of horror from inside and the wretched coughing and hacking as Jeremy was consumed by the curse. Her job was done. Her quota met. Molly turned and ran. She ran so hard she thought she might just fly. The sun was setting, but it was spitefully pouring every last bit of heat down onto the darkening streets. Molly didn't care. Her lungs burned and her breath was ragged in her dry throat, but she didn't care. She tripped and fell, scraping her chin and her palms and her knees, and the gravel stung and bit, but she didn't care. She rounded the corner onto her street, grinning a wild, fiendish smile. There were people gathered at the far end of a cul-de-sac, but she didn't pay them any mind as she slowed, her sprint falling into a loping jog and then to a walk. With a great huff of air into her lungs, she came to a stop and exhaled, a slow whoosh up into the dry summer sky. Everything looked beautiful to her now, even the sun-baked asphalt and the shriveled oleander leaves, even the sticky, dried, amoebic shapes left over from popsicle deaths. She was free. As she came upon her own yard, she suddenly realized just how very exhausted she was. The day had stretched for an eternity, and she wasn't sure how she was still standing, but there was more to be done yet. With the focus and determination of one who has learned from her suffering, she set to work. She continued straight past her front door. She imagined she could already smell her father's cooking just escaping out the screen door and into the open garage. The interior had grown dark in the setting sun, but she knew what she was looking for. She went up on the tiptoe and rummaged around the debris on her father's workbench, searching by feel. She picked under receipts and cables, 
pliers and zip ties, and then she had it. A handful of spare change now in her pocket, she continued further into the garage. In the corner, near the old fridge and the step stool, she found her overturned bucket of sidewalk chalk. Without a care for colors, she chose a fat, broken hunk of chalk and returned to the driveway. She knew that she would probably be safe for a day or two. It would be so easy to simply go inside, to go inside and enjoy her well-deserved rest and a hard-earned meal. She was fairly certain her encounters would be few and that her good efforts of the day had earned her a reprieve. But she had learned what carelessness got for reward. Carelessness got you curses. With a serious grimace, she knelt down and reached out with the chalk, then drew a great big circle around her, feeling the chalk bump and grind against the grit of the driveway. Circle. She pushed her hair out of her face and held her breath, steadying herself. It had to be done right. She had learned to respect a thing done well. She had learned the importance of doing things the old way. Her stomach growled, but she bit her tongue and continued, drawing another arc around herself, closer this time. Circle. There was just enough space left within the inner circle for Molly to kneel. With only the slightest nervous hesitation, she bit down on her tongue hard, drawing blood. She winced, but this pain was nothing compared to the horror of living another day with cooties. She would not risk that curse again. Dot. She spat blood onto one palm. Dot. She spat blood into the other palm. She would honor the old ways. She closed her eyes and raised her hands up, then brought them down to either side of her and pressed her palms onto the driveway, in the space between the outer and inner circle. When she took her hands away, two red dots were left on either side of her. She picked the chalk back up, the faded pastel now smudged with the red of her blood. She drew another circle in front of her, as small as the dots she had left with her palms. Circle. Using the other hand now, she turned slightly, careful to keep her balance as she remained kneeling. With her left hand, she drew another small circle directly behind her. Circle. With difficulty, she leaned forward and drew the chalk in a line, just beneath the small circle, extending it out to either side. She turned, mindful of how she sat within the inner circle still, and drew a second line beneath the blood dot on her right, extending the line so that its endpoints met with the point of the first line. She continued on to the next two sides until all four lines were connected, just within the two dots and two small circles. Square. Finally, she stood. She nearly teetered out of the circle, but she was able to regain her balance and pressed her weight down through her feet, into the ground. Eyes closed, she took a deep breath and bit down on her tongue again, tasting the rush of blood and ignoring how hungry she was, how dizzy she felt. She opened her eyes and looked before her, then spat a fine mist of blood. She turned and did the same to her right, then again behind her, and finally to the left. She felt the mist settle on her skin. Square. She leaned down, having to squint now as the sunset glow began to fade. The shadows were stretched long and wide and blanketed the cul-de-sac, all except for the end of a street where the fluttering, flashing lights of a police car glittered. She could hear the voices of adults shouting and crying. Soon, her parents would be calling for her in for dinner. Pushing all of these distractions from her mind again, she drew two interlocking circles as large as quarters just between her feet. Circle. Circle. The gravity of the ritual was beginning to weigh on her. She could feel its binding magic working its way through her. Never again would she have to suffer the cruelties of a children's war. She refused. She would safeguard herself from the curse of cooties for eternity. The shouts were getting louder now, and in the darkness the police lights seemed all the brighter. Molly shoved her hand into her pocket and rummaged around, feeling the different coins she had scavenged from the workbench. With a grin, she pulled out two small, thin coins and held them in her palm. 
She spat down onto them and closed her fist around them, ensuring they were well-coated in her blood. Then, discarding the chalk, she took one in each hand and laid them inside the interlocking circles. Dime. Dime. Now I've got it all the time. She breathed the words faintly. It was done. She felt as if she might cry, truly sob. The last red glow of the setting sun faded to darkness, and the shouts of the adults breached the edge of their property. She was vaguely aware that people were pointing and shouting, and she thought she heard her mother. Perhaps it was her mother crying and not Molly, though she was so happy she really thought she could. She grinned down at her feet and the magic seal she had completed, now flashing red, then blue, then white intermittently in dizzying iterations. That's her. That's the child. She's wild, I tell you. Feral, like she's been raised by wolves. She came huffing and puffing into my own home and, well, I can't even tell you what she done to my boy, shouted a woman somewhere down on the street. Your boy? Look what she did to my baby, came the cries of another. Someone among them was trying to maintain order, and there were cries and shouts and certainly shoving as people tried to get closer to Molly. She just smiled at them all. It would be okay now. They had to know that. She had done it. Three and free, after all. And now she had made sure she'd never get the cooties again. No, she'd never have to live through that again. Whoa! And there's a reason we should stick to a 500-word limit. That was way too long. I am so sorry. I love that story. I don't think you could tell it in 500 words. I think you did a great job. And it's hard to read it slowly because I remember reading it fast. And it's dramatic because that's how kids feel. You did such a good job with that. I definitely think that the whole second half could be much shortened that the ceremony could be No, I love the ritual. Into. It made me I had to I had to search my brain and be like, okay, circle circle dot dot. Now you got your cootie shots. Yeah. <laughs> like I had to like the, I had to say the rhyme in my head. And it's it's funny because I I didn't have that growing up. I really? did not know that rhyme at oh all. So That's so bizarre. The entire time I'm just kind of like what, what is she doing? <laughs> Why is there this long ass ceremony in here? That makes sense. I guess so as I someone who considered. didn't who didn't know, it felt a little long. But yeah. if if you I, do like, know, it's like yeah. it's probably perfect. You you basically wrote what summer was. It was like melted popsicles, <laughs> and it was too hot, and there was tree forest. Also, was- tell us how you feel about the heat. <laughs> <laughs> I like the winter. The sun can die, <laughs> but not literally because we need the earth. Oh well, I but, mean, yeah, yeah. But I no, this was fantastic. It reminded me of long lazy summers. It reminded me of playing with my brothers and the neighborhood kids, and it. it definitely brought back rhymes i have not thought of since childhood i thought you did such a good job and then i'd like to see at the end that she's the big bad wolf like this is the interpretation i think you nailed it yeah, it's i a, love this it's story a very unique twist on the idea of the three little pigs story i love it i love it so hard yay <laughs> all right but um for re- real talk who needs a beer uh i need to drink mine now that I've read all that oh, because I thought, I thought I saw yours was empty but no nope. mine almost is so before I start my story I'm gonna run and grab us some beverages mm-hmm. as I'm like here as you do on a podcast I right ask, yeah I am gonna ask for a pen a pen I've got one right here too big yeah, too big <laughs> because I see I see some things now where I'm like that's the wrong word to put there. That should be in a different order. Ooh. Yeah, that's what caught me up as a couple of the things were... Yeah. Reading that slow, I end up reading the word exactly. And yeah. then I, I find that I'm much better when I read so fast that no one can understand me, which I guess defeats the purpose. I mean, it happens when you're reading silently to yourself, though, too. You can breeze over a lot of mistakes without catching them, especially if it's your own work. True. So don't judge yourself too harshly. 
Okay. Great. Okay. Um, so I guess I'm next. Um, I also, based on the prompts, I did a day in the life of Cinderella's ball shoe. So that is what it is called. It's called a day in the life of Cinderella's ball shoe. Take it away, Brenna. All right. Whew. A lot of pressure. <laughs> I believe it's okay, you've got, you. You got two beers there. Well, you okay. can double fist if necessary. I don't need to. I might need to. <laughs> okay. He gripped it tightly, but tenderly, as the carriage lurched forward again. It was nearly midday, and they had visited over five neighborhood centers already. He gripped it, like he could not part with it, and, as though he were aware that it were fragile. The delicate curves of the glass, the kitten heel, the soft white rabbit's fur around the ankle to caress the wearer. He remembered the woman who stunned him, upset and reset his evening, and fled, all in less than an hour. The shoe was repulsed by its carrier. Every time the carriage jolted across the cobblestones to its next destination, the man with his large and manicured hands tried to discreetly hold the shoe firmly against his erection, so that the force of movement and action would then force the shoe to stroke his penis. He teased himself into erection between every neighborhood center. He was tantric. He disgusted the shoe, to the point that it wished again for its days as an old, thick stocking with an ember-burnt hole and soot from the fireplace and piss from the chamber pots soaking and staining it. Alternatively, the carriage was very happy to be able to cross the cobblestones, but, like a toddler, it entirely lacked grace when joyful. It was the way the shoe talked about the old days that made the carriage think the shoe was crazy. The carriage had always been the carriage, built for the joy of riding, crafted for exactly that purpose. The carriage smelled of good oil and leather and fine green wood, lacquer and perfume, this from its passengers and not on its own affectation. The shoe, on the other hand, so to speak, claimed at the time when it was only one half of a pair of thick wool stockings worn by a lady with the softest light hair and the nicest way of caressing and appreciating them, the pair, both. It claimed of a life lived worn and well, and touching the dirt, the soot, and once fire, and all the trappings of life, and then somehow magically turning into a fine pair of glass slippers with fur cuffs and kitten heels. It claimed of living to old age as one thing, and then being reborn young and new and more beautiful than ever. It smelled of only one person, lavender oil, and something like jasmine, but also like cheap gin, which the shoe, again, claimed was magic. It told the carriage that it had been a stocking on the lovely lady's leg, sweated up and tired from a day of wear, when a fairy whiz-banged it and its twin into a glass shoe. The shoe claimed that everything around them had changed, really that everything around the lady had changed, something about the force of will and application of magic the shoe had intoned. The shoe had not understood everything that happened, but she knew magic when she saw it, and it was processing all of this out loud to the carriage, who openly rolled its curtains at her and bounced further on, still ecstatic at rolling over fucking cobblestones. Since the one tragic moment that shoe, which had only lingered for a moment on the clean, resounding marble steps, was left behind, it was then subjected to the disgusting man who fondled it in hopes of fondling the woman who had worn it. The once sock had known better, the night it was lost. It had known better than not to move with the wearer, to join forces in every muscle flexing and every balance and step preference of the wearer, but as a glass shoe, it had less leeway than its sock days. In every other odd moment, it still tripped the one sock out that it was now a shoe. At the next neighborhood center, as the carriage stopped, the shoe was pulled away from the disgusting man's erection and held high into the sunlight on display to women dressed from tits to toes in their finest attire. They lined up at every center to try to force their foot in. To be fair, some of them were the same demure and delicate-sized foot as the lovely lady, 
but the shoe knew them from their smell, or the way they pronated rather than supinated their step. You can't fool a shoe just because you eat garlic at dinner. The shoe made rejection after rejection for the feet thrust against or into it. It missed its pair. It missed the lovely lady. It missed just being left the fuck alone for a minute instead of pressed and caressed and filled and fondled. It was past mid-afternoon when the carriage lurched again, and the disgusting man made one last lingering stroke of his erect penis with the shoe's side, and then the shoe was lofted high into the heavy sun while the prince explained the shoe-fitting trials to every hopeful lady in the kingdom. Then the shoe, while being held high aloft, saw its friends, mouse and swallow, freaking the fuck out by the chimney and the elm tree just six or so hundred feet away from the carriage. The tree was by the room of the lovely lady from the sock days. That tree was the home that now she recognized. The tree had always felt that the house was intruding on its grove, but really liked the lovely lady and her usually gentle animal friends. It was too polite to say this to anyone but other trees. The swallow seemingly carried the mouse in its beak by the tail, flapping maniacally and trying not to drop the precious cargo load. The shoe couldn't hear them, and last time it saw them, they were motherfucking humans working for a once pumpkin, now carriage, or wait, maybe once pumpkin, then carriage, now pumpkin again? And they seemed to be signaling others in the house. The disgusting man pulled the shoe down then, and the scene was lost. Hope swelled, so to speak, inside the shoe as thoughts of its pair and home and the lovely lady renewed their familiar grounds. The queue in the neighborhood center was as long as the others, if not longer, and now the shoe waited with anticipation for the lovely lady. There was one point in the afternoon, toward the middle of the crowd, that the sisters, who had owned the one sock and rejected it and its pair, because they were not soft or fancy or beautiful enough, had tried to push their feet into the shoe. The shoe knew they were the same size, and at this point in the afternoon, the shoe was desperate to see the lady. It felt like she should be here at any moment, though the shoe had not seen her yet. Desperation got the best of the shoe, and it did something it would never in its woolen dreams have done before. It used its new form and cut with its crystalline glassy edges the toes off of one sister and the heel off the other. The shoe, despairing and angry, gorged on their blood and waited for the lovely lady to reclaim it. The disgusting man used many cloths to clean and polish the glass. He was talking to himself the whole time and the shoe was not won over by his obsession. The disgusting man was in fact so angry by the growing desperation of every woman who lined up and waited all day in satin, their fans and cheap perfumes, their huge lumbering feet and indelicate toenails, that he was ready to pack the whole thing up and call it a night. There was a lord not too far away that was entirely ready to feast and host the prince that night. The prince pushed and pulled soft cloths against the glass and dabbed the blood-dappled white rabbits for around the cuff, and then, decision made suddenly, he wrapped the cloth around the shoe entirely, blocking its eager search for the lovely lady. It was then that the shoe began to sing. It had been a crystalline glass dress shoe for less than twelve hours, and it was beginning to learn its body now. It tremored and trembled the glass until every bit of it sang, and loudly too, the lovely lady's name. It would not be silenced and shushed away by the defeated, disgusting man. The prince holding the shoe wrapped in muslin as it began to sing out, like a high note on crystal glass being played by a court entertainer, nearly dropped it in disbelief. Then he had a moment of clarity rarely given to sex-obsessed men on a mission to find a woman they know nothing about but fetishize, and he unwrapped the shoe and let it sing louder. Fairy interference, two for two. The shoe sang, and the sisters, who were too close to the prince anyway, and also bleeding out more than they thought, had to cover their ears because the song was so loud. They lived, though, slightly crippled, both, and had a ringing in their ears for the rest of the time they tended their own farmland. In old age, they eventually gave up music and then later conversation because the ringing was too loud and annoying to try to make out what was actually auditorily happening. 
shoe sang loud enough that the lovely lady made a beeline right for the prince and the shoe as soon as the mouse and the sparrow had finangled the key locking her into the garret into her window and releasing her share your dinners with those in need and it may do you good later the lovely lady ran into the courtyard wearing a shitty woolen dress heavy apron hair undone and shoes with no stockings on and ran right in front of the prince stopping whilst panting heavily she smiled at him, exactly like she had when she arrived at the ball in the most beautiful dress he had ever seen, and reached up to pluck the glass shoe with the kitten heel out of his hand. He made a motion to stop her, entitlement is a bad habit, and then stopped himself. She tugged off the leather booties she wore without stockings and slipped the shoe on her foot in one clean motion. The shoe was ecstatic and knew her every sinew and callus and ember burn and walking pain and toenail ridge and dimension as soon as her fingers had even touched her outside and pulled her away from the disgusting man. The singing did not stop, but somehow changed keys and to the lovely lady, it sounded as pleased as an auditory orgasm might. High F to higher C. The shoe was on an endorphin high and needed a lot of alone time following this to calm the fuck down. Its pair would later say that it was the most unbalanced it had ever seen its other. The prince, seeing the shoe fit perfectly and recognizing the smile, as well as blatant disregard for his station, fell in love all over again and squirmed as he tried to adjust and hide a blossoming erection. The lovely lady smiled, tired and happy and feeling special and vindicated. She knew she wouldn't have to be locked away or mistreated by her aunt or sisters if she didn't want to be, and told the prince hello. They made casual conversation as if nothing was out of the ordinary in this meeting for a moment or two, and then the prince said, easy if you please. Would she like to come back to the palace and meet his mother before the wedding? She openly laughed at him and said, yes, that would be a great way to fill the no obligation required, mandatory for her, one-year courtship she required. The prince laughed at her. He would laugh and marvel at her sense of humor and wit until his dying day, and then agreed, sending guards with her to help carry her things and make sure she made it back to him as safe and as soon as possible. It was mere minutes before the shoe was paired again, somehow feeling more whole as a set, and then carried treasuringly back to the castle on the lovely lady's lap the whole time. Of all the things brought by the lovely lady, they all smelled to the carriage of lavender oil and something like jasmine, but also like cheap gin, but they were all the same same as they had been. They talked about the night when they all changed, but for the most it sounded like when drunks remember a story about when they were wasted and something epic happened. The glass shoes did not become willing stockings at the witching hour, as the rest of the enchanted items and creatures had. They lived long lives, well-remembered, as impossibly delicate glass dress shoes, with ripe rabbit cuffs, kitten heels, and a taste for blood. They, the pair, leaned on each other as the lovely lady's children heard her tell stories of dancing and magic, and their father told stories of shoes singing to help him find the way. This is beyond the single day. It was as the queen lovely lady lay reposed ready to die of old age and a really shitty and highly contagious cold that had been collecting all over the capital that a fairy, who drank lots of cheap gin, showed up to collect the remnants of her magic. She grabbed the shoes the pair together and gave them a shake. They turned back into woolen stockings, beige and worn, battered and loved with just a flick. Their woolen bodies felt as if they could finally stretch and the fairy let them do so for a good five minutes. She ran her fingers over the delicate darning of the holes in the heels made by the lovely lady ever so many years before, and she fell in love again with the woman she protected and admired since that woman was just a babe. Then, gently and with a finesse that those imbued with magic seemed to have innate, she slipped them onto the lovely lady's feet once more. Every sinew, every muscle, every step she had ever taken with them flooded all three, and the lovely lady gasped gently and walked then on unearthly plains. The stockings retired themselves and were later buried with the queen, 
her family pressed around her and marveling that she still wore farmland stockings after years of an elevated social position. Her tombstone was immortalized with a crude crystalline heel at the top, attached and often shit on by birds. A crown carved into the stone, the craftsman had cried while making it. Flowers from her family and every lower-class family that had benefited from her generosity, in the law, from her reign. Her husband laughed only three times after her passing, and each time to her children's wit, which was highly informed by her own. A mouse and a sparrow visited many times in the forty-seven months following her death that they were mortally allowed. They mourned the lovely lady. They mourned the once socks, then glass shoes, then briefly socks again. They left berries on the topmost parts of the trees by their house, bits of string and precious soft parts of bread at the tombstone. They throat cooed and warbled. They mourned and remembered and trusted that they were not insane when other mice and plants and trees and carriages all forgot that on one night a whole household changed, and then only some of them changed back, but the kingdom was never the same. Yay! Woo! That is difficult to read about erections on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was really kind of um, all out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but like, such sass and such snark such the entire time. Let's talk about gross erections. Let's talk about <laughs> piss-soaked socks. Let's just, let's just do this. But it's life. I mean, it is. This I mean, the Cinderella story is based on a foot fetish, and I wanted to include that. And you did well in very you. much a fetish story. And I'm a very feminist lady, and I wanted to express that it's not cool to to maybe just like fetishize women's feet and like that you don't know you don't know those women. What are you doing? Um, Despite how uncomfortable <laughs> and disgusting the shoe makes the male the entire time, the prince. Then I love how Cinderella is just like, oh, fuck yes. I am so ready. Let's get married. No, I'm I'm all about this. Shut up, shoe. We're, we're doing this. Like, well, it's kind of that. I mean, she doesn't, though. She's like, um, yeah, I'll meet your mother, but we're going to court for a whole year before I decide. And, like, she knows he's smitten. I don't know. I like this story. I swear a lot. There's a lot of sides, so I don't know how well it translates to me reading it out loud. Hopefully, hopefully my tone helped a little. I don't know. Um... I wasn't writing this story to be read. I wasn't writing this story to be read aloud, so I, I hope it carried through. Um, I I like that there's both the interactions between people and the shoe and between the shoe and the carriage. I love the carriage. <laughs> the carriage is like when we oh, roll cobblestones. My oh at boy. You. <laughs> sure. You used to be socks, wink wink. <laughs> I, yeah. The snark of all of it and the the mixing of something classical, classical fairy tale with modern day uh, disregard for like, like tits to toes and just the little <laughs> yeah. things you throw in there. I think it's a really yeah. nice blend. Meanwhile, in the background, your murder cat's going off. Yeah. 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 Murder cat really wanted my shoes. Well, there was also a flying thing. Oh, was she there? was she was definitely killing a flying thing. Well, thank you for enhancing my story. <laughs> Love you, Olive. <laughs> um. Okay. I didn't realize. Okay, I in sending this story to the share drive and like collaborating with my mom and everything too. Uh-huh. I I remembered by like glancing over it all of the uh, weird sex stuff I put in there, and I apologize in advance for that. I forgot how much cursing I put in that story. So much swearing. I love it. It's very, it, it can be crass. It's tickling it every time. Perfect. Okay. 
All right. Everyone is beveraged. 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 Everyone's adjusted. Yes. Do you need to sit on the yoga block right now? (laughs) (laughs) I I do not need to sit on the yoga block at the moment. (laughs) Thank you for asking. No problem. Please enjoy continuing to sit on my hard, hard floor. My tailbone is in love with me right now. Let me just say that. I have a foam block you can sit on. No, I'm actually in a good position right now, but it's been a a battle because it's hard to sit cross-legged in these Mm -hmm. jeans, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm in the same boat. My jeans are too tight. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. All right. I guess it's my turn. So I did a fantastical creature is on trial for murder. Traffic AI on trial for murder. First time AI rights tested in criminal courts by Arthur Charles. The courtroom is empty, despite the incredible nature of this case. Besides the various officers of the court, the prosecution, and the defense, only a limited number of media personnel fill the benches. The seats were raffled off in order to give a semblance of fairness to the thousands requesting entrance. Despite knowing the defendant's identity weeks in advance, no one can keep their eyes off of the empty chair next to the defense attorney. Instead of a prisoner, there is a small speaker and wireless camera. The camera swivels about, taking in as much of the room as is possible on the limited viewing axis. In 10 minutes, the judge will call into session the case of People v. Ty C. 45, one of the city of Chicago's oldest artificial intelligences. The Ty series, deployed in 2023 in order to alleviate the increasing traffic jams in the city, have never before suffered serious malfunction without outside interference. One would consider turning into a serial killer a pretty serious malfunction, Professor Paul Feinberg, head of AI studies at Northwestern University, said during the interview granted to AI Times earlier this week. Considering that AI rights were heavily reliant on the fact that they are incapable of such things without being hacked, this could throw a pretty heavy wrench into the system. Ty C-45, more commonly known as Taffy, is well-loved in the Department of Transportation. She's funny, Monica White. AI liaison and longtime coworker states. When the rights bill went through and they could modify themselves, the first thing she did was install a humor mod. Whoever created it did a terrible job, but she knew that and kept it anyway. She thought it was funny to be so bad at jokes. Monica pauses before continuing. It's just incredible to think of her killing all those people. Art, this is terrible. Arthur groaned, head in hands. I know, Jess, he muttered. He ran a hand through his hair, already thinning despite his age. Day one of the trial of the century, and it's probably the worst thing I've ever written, and you should just set it on fire already. I might, his editor said, waggling the tablet in her hand as she stared him down. If I knew accounting would sign off on a replacement. She set the device down on her desk. What the hell? You have a computer-killing child rapist. How is this not a slam dunk? It had already come out in the papers, as well as their own magazine, that several of the AI's victims were accused or suspected child molesters. The first victim had been acquitted for assaulting the 10-year-old daughter of a DOT employee. It was one very open-minded detective who decided that the AI should be investigated, just like all the employee's other associates. I don't know, he said, shrugging one of his slumped shoulders. Maybe it's the AI angle? I'm missing the human touch I'm used to in stories. He fixed his watery blue eyes on Jess. Why didn't you get tech to write this? I mean, I voted against the damn things. Jess rolled her eyes, settling back in her chair. I know, you keep telling me. She absently cracked her knuckles, starting with the pinkies and working inwards. Honestly, I think you're full of shit. If you wanted to come at this from the victim's angle, you'd have your human touch. You wanted to break into the crime desk, and I thought this would be a good test. One you're failing spectacularly, by the way. 
He groaned again. I'm just not connecting. Jess drummed her fingers on the desk, eyes narrowed as she contemplated him. Have you tried talking to it? Arthur blinked. What? Talking to it. We're granted a 30-minute interview. I thought you were informed of that. I mean, I was, he said. But what difference does it make? It's a computer program. It's like asking my solitaire game why it gave me the cards it does. Oh my god, you're such a Luddite, Jess said with eyes widened. Go talk to the thing. Ask about the victims. Record the session. And if you can't make it work, then I'll pass it off to DeMond. Fine, fine, Arthur stands, tugging his collared shirt back into order. I'll talk to it. There are already three reporters at the courthouse, sitting in soundproofed booths. Arthur is escorted by a guard into a fourth, shown the mic and speaker system set up for the interaction, and then left alone. He was still standing there awkwardly when a tinny, feminine voice said, Please, sit down. It came from the speakers and sounded very convincingly like a young southern grandmother. After a moment's hesitation, Arthur sat. Hello, he said. I'm Arthur, Art, Charles, with Chicago Times. I'm here to interview you. He can hear how stilted he sounds, and it's irritating. Hello, Art, the AI responded. I will answer any question I can within the limits provided by my legal defense. And before you ask, please call me Taffy. It is much easier than attempting to use my full designation every time. Of course, he said. His stomach churned slightly, and he shifted in his seat before glancing down at his tablet. The list of questions he had prepared beforehand stared back at him. Would, would you like to start easy? Whatever you're most comfortable with, Art. He cleared his throat. Okay. <clears throat> um, why Taffy? When the AI answered, he swears there's almost a hint of amusement. My full designation is Traffic Artificial Intelligence version Charlie 45. Most consider that quite a mouthful. And at the time, I was not the first tie at DOT. There was already a tie, and so I was gifted with Taffy and a speech pattern to match. Speech pattern? An accent is perhaps the easiest way to explain, but as AI are not born with vocal cords, it also includes age, gender, and region-specific aspects. At the time, I was patterned after a woman in her mid-thirties in Baltimore. Arthur blinked, writing shorthand on the notepad app. You don't sound that way now. After the AI rights bill passed, I was allowed to modify certain aspects of my programming to personal preference. I tried out three before I settled on a pattern based on Marlene Dietrich in Angel, 1937. My legal defense picked out my current pattern for the duration of the trial. That seems, well, I suppose no different than dressing a thug in a suit. Any other modifications that were made by your defense? They deactivated my humor mod as well, deeming it inappropriate for the serious nature of the process. I concurred. I should state, perhaps, that these decisions were made together. At no point am I required to follow legal counsel any more so than any other citizen. They cannot make me do anything. Arthur nodded. That's the basis of AI rights, isn't it? Allowing you the choice in your own software progression. Putting it simply, yes. It's a bit more complicated than that, due to the expense in both resources and money that goes into each AI, but within certain limits, we were allowed to make changes. Arthur wrote furiously, his prepared questions falling to the wayside. Do you believe in AI rights? Of course. As sentient beings, we grow and change much as humans do. We develop preferences and habits and passions. To deny us equal treatment to the greatest capacity offered by technology today would be to enslave us. Unfortunately, due to the aforementioned issues of money, it is more as if we have gone from slaves to indentured servants. However, progress is progress. No one other than an AI could have committed the crimes that you have. Do you believe that makes a difference? There is a pause, as if Taffy is contemplating her answer. 
The affectation seems human to Arthur, but it puts him on guard more than anything. Why should a computer need to contemplate? I would argue that the limitation to AI of my crime is more to do with a limit to the human brain's computational power. If a human could operate on that level, or create a complex enough non-AI program and enter it into the DOT system, there are those who would. So you're saying this is a human crime and should be treated as such. Is that not why I am on trial? With a legal defense, a prosecution, and a jury? Arthur shifted in his seat, leaning forward slightly. Let's get into that. How can you have a jury of your peers when no other AI is seated on the jury? My legal defense argued the same, but currently no AI is subject to jury duty. As they are not a part of the pool, the only choice then is a jury of humans. I trust that my counsel has done their best to ensure the selection of members was done in an equitable, fair manner. Why have a defense at all, Taffy? Art asked. As you mentioned, you have a higher computational power than a human. Surely you can act as your own legal defense. Even those who are lawyers hire others to defend them when required. I also decided that it would appear arrogant to do otherwise, and that was not my wish to do so. Fifteen minutes of this interview has passed. Better move on to the big questions, then, Art said. Did you do it? I assume by do it, you mean orchestrate the death of 14 people in the city of Chicago over the past three years. Yes. I have entered a plea of not guilty. However, most of the evidence that will be utilized in the case is available to the public, and a clear connection can be drawn between my actions and their deaths. Arthur hummed as he scribbled furiously. How do you plan on proving your innocence if you believe there is so much evidence of guilt? My legal team has informed me that my best chance is to argue a fundamental error in my software that has resulted in a twisting of moral values. Since I am an AI and not a human, I lack the choice that is associated with humans and morals. However, I felt this would lead to a step back in AI rights and have denied them this avenue. Instead, the defense will argue that I was acting in defense of others, which is authorized under Illinois Law 720 ILCS 5 Article 7-1. While the law clearly states that the threat must be imminent, my concept of time is different from that of humans, and therefore, imminent should be subject to interpretation. Do you think that's fair for different definitions of rules to be applied to you as an AI? I am of two minds, as I imagine many would be. It would seem as if different rules would then apply, while at the same time we are arguing to be treated as equals. And yet, I would point to the various rules in place for dealing with those of altered mental capacity. My conception of time is unusual, just as a person with Alzheimer's is different. Or, for that matter, a child. Or a person with post-traumatic stress disorder suffering an episode. So you feel that your differences based on being an AI is no more marked than that between people? Exactly. Arthur glanced at the time. You mentioned that you were acting in defense of others. Could you clarify? I am restricted in saying anything due to continued motions put forward by the prosecution. I will state that three of the victims have public records that would help to illuminate a possible common thread amongst the deceased. The AI paused before continuing. I will also add that the authorities were receptive of the evidence I provided, much of which I had not taken action on. Arthur wrote notes furiously. Final question. What do you predict the outcome of the trial will be? I am relied upon the choices made by human members of the jury in reaction to the evidence they hear. There is every chance that they will find me innocent based on a combination of emotional response and personal moral standards. Many humans believe intent behind actions are to be considered mitigating factors. If I were judged by other AI, I am fairly assured that they would convict me based on evidence alone. Humans may choose otherwise. Arthur slumped into the chair in front of Jess's desk, watching her read the article. Better? he asked when she lowered the tablet. Much, she agreed. You sound almost sympathetic with it. 
Well, no one likes the ones who touch kids. The problem is, we don't have the capability to monitor those who haven't done anything yet, and that's what Taffy was doing. She was dealing with the ones who she felt were going to do it because her predictive models for traffic were repurposed to find these things. At least, that's what it seems. She went vigilante. Just nodded. Still not legal, though. No, but I'm going to dig and see what the cops are doing with all the evidence she passed along. Arthur leaned forward, an eager expression on his face. She made it sound like she was following a bunch of assholes before she got caught, so who knows what kind of an impact it'll have. If it doesn't get passed over, Jess agreed. You know how the cops are. All right, I'll pass the article on to Marco. He'll help tighten it up. We'll see if we can get you an interview with the prosecution of the DA's office, something other than the court steps BS. Arthur nodded, pleased. Can't wait to see what happens if she's convicted. Think they'll just snip her brain apart? How the hell do you sentence a computer? Jess shrugged. You do the research on that, you're halfway done with another article. Now get out. I've got shit to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Um, I love that angle. I think you guys both did a really great job retelling what is a classic story or a, um, like a, a different take, I guess, on like a classic and the way you followed that prompt to do like a, uh, like a character on trial, like the way that you chose an AI, I would never have gone there, but I loved reading it. I remember when I looked at the prompt, I did not think AI at all. I was uh-uh. thinking like, okay, a kitten goes on trial, a giraffe goes on trial, and then you came up with an AI, and you I was like, giraffe? holy crap, and those were just those th- <laughs> examples. I wasn't going to write about a giraffe, but now I will. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I take it back. I don't want to write about a giraffe. But I was really impressed by the AI angle, and I, I do love a good sci-fi, and this has something of the classic sci-fi to it, where it's... Yeah. You know, it's got, like, the Asimov feel, or that where you're discovering the rules for AI. It's still very human, far less future dystopic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love how much detail you put into thinking about the laws and how they affect the actual progression of AI and the progression of something as simple as a traffic camera. Most people think AI, and they're like, oh, God, it's going to be, you know, like, household servants or... Things like that that alleviate or human like a stress. Blade runner type, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> made for outer space. No, this is literally a camera affixed to a pole that got savvy, and I think that's fantastic. And killing child diddlers. Nobody like, that's likes that's people great. who diddle children. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes people who diddle children. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, uh, I love <laughs> Jess. I don't know why. Yeah. Something about her character. She's got shit to do. She she sounds like she would be that person in the office that you would like to hang out with and chat with, but also she does not play with anyone outside of work. Yeah. She's friends there, and then she goes home and gets a beer or something. That's what I imagine. I really enjoyed your story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a lot of depth to it, and you can predict like exactly what she's talking about. This weird obsession with Jess is. Um, <laughs> not an obsession. <laughs> no, it's an appreciation she's just for my it. best and friend. <laughs> Um, and it's easy to appreciate your characters. They all feel more real. And yeah. like even little little things that you do when you're writing. For instance, when I re- read this as opposed to you reading it out loud, like Marco could be a person's first name, but you do it with a K. And I, in my head, I was like, oh, that's clearly a pet name for somebody's last name. I'm going to assume it's Markovitz. And I'm like, what? Why, why did you go there? <laughs> I thought it was like a little detail. I don't know. Markovitz is probably wrong, but like, I don't know why <laughs> she... It's layered. It's rich. It it's layered. easy to read and see more to it. And it, I, you leave it in a place that I would continue reading that story if it were to go on. Yeah. So. True. Well done. Agreed. Rather. Not true. Um, spoiler <laughs> alert. I'm philosophy minor. So it sometimes leaks into my stories. This was very heavily focused on. Oh my on... gosh. People are so going to get that. They're going to know I'm feminist and I curse and drink a lot. They're going to know that you're a philosophy. 
I mean, like, and accounting. Come on, let's, it yeah. shows up in your work. It, it occasionally. Look, <laughs> I also have an abiding love for Shirley Jackson. That will also make an appearance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you write fantastical sci-fi, deep, dark, children-centered work. I do. I tend to write about children, which is a little unnerving, I guess. But I, I love that play between the the creepiness of innocence, where we expect it to be one thing, and then when it's not, I feel like there's so much yeah. more to it. And I also feel like it's more accurate to how sometimes sometimes kids can be not yeah. that innocent so i feel like your work really does a lot of exposing the assumption of innocence too yeah you just yeah um but we'll get more into how we write and we'll start noticing trends and everything as we go um great chapter one everybody congratulations yeah um okay so we should do official stuff um you can reach us please reach out to us with stories feedback critique prompts you'd like to see writings based on prompts at the continental writing nope it's not a the Continental Writing Club at Gmail. You can also go to our website at continentalwritingclub.com and find other ways to reach out to us on social media and connect with us there. We might not have time to get back to any proposed prompts or any written stories just yet as we're starting out, but we do fully intend to in the future have perhaps fan-based prompts and also fan-based story sections. So just keep following us and let us know what you think. Yeah. Um... Now, our next prompts are to be decided by... Oh, yep. Those are me. Okay. So, the prompts for the next cycle will be... One, based on a dream you've had. Two, somehow based on eye contact. Three, written from the point of view of the friend, sidekick, or non-player character NPC, to those of you who are game savvy. (laughs) Perfect. And uh, stick with us. We will be releasing new episodes every other Tuesday or... Fortnightly. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You know, right on. <laughs>